0: Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 1030, or 12 noon. We are located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon.
1: Well, good afternoon, everyone. I am uh, Robert Kelly, and you guys sound a little sleepy. All right, let's try it again. Good afternoon. Because there's coffee in the back if you still feel like you need any. Um, anyway, uh, I am uh, really glad that we are doing this uh, two-week uh, Matthew 25 challenge. And uh, I like it because it helps to raise awareness and jostle us out of the sort of insular lives that many of us live that disconnect us from the needs of people all around us. I know this is my story. In fact, I have found it shamefully easy to get so wrapped up in my own little world that I forget the very real and significant needs of people in my own neighborhood and of people around the world. When I was a kid, I uh, I grew up in New Jersey. And uh, I was part of a church there, and our youth group used to go to Newark to do street evangelism, believe it or not. It was very, very cool. So uh, we would show up, and we would, you know, people would be dressed as clowns, and we would have unicycles, and there would be like magic tricks, and you know, people playing instruments, and we would do a little show, and people would gather up, and this is back in the day when Newark was safe, uh, just kidding. Back then, it was way, way less safe than it is today. In fact, I can't even imagine with, with our whole helicopter parenting thing going on, how parents would respond to sending their, their youth off to Newark to do street evangelism uh, in some pretty tough neighborhoods, too. And you'd get a crowd, and then like, somebody would just stand up, and they would teach, and they would like, you know, tell people about Jesus and open up the Bible, and it was really very cool. Well, anyway, uh, what that was really, as a young person, that was a pretty eye-opening experience for me, to be sitting there in some very, very tough neighborhoods and just thinking, my goodness, this is what is out here in the world. Like, that's not what I knew. Now, where I grew up, it wasn't, you know, we were like kind of, you know, lower middle class neighborhood, and I didn't really know it at the time because, you know, it just felt like this is what, you know what you have, and that's all you really know about the world, Uh, but there was a significant amount of heartache and poverty, even in my own neighborhood, but but nothing compared to what we were exposed to when we were doing these trips uh, down into Newark and some other neighborhoods. And then of course, you know, I I grew up, I went to college, I went to California, and there we were living in, you know, kind of a lower middle income area, the kind of place where a lot of parents wouldn't want to send their college uh, kids to to go live, but we lived in a couple of those neighborhoods as well. Uh, but I was beginning to already get more and more removed from real and significant needs that are happening just in neighborhoods, you know, a half mile, a mile away from where we were living. Then I went to Chicago, and the distance grew even more. Uh, we were in a very kind of middle class. You know, everybody had their own little house, and their lawns were all kept up. And they would all get out there with their snow blowers, and you know, do their their thing every winter, every day of every day. I was anyway. It was Chicago. Didn't love that, uh, but uh, there, you know, we were in a in our own little school bubble as well, and our church bubble. It was it was it was literally called. Uh, north Suburban Church, and that's what it was. It was a, just a, a, a nice, quaint suburban church. And then I came to Long Island, and of course, felt even more removed. Now, when we first moved here, we didn't realize this because we were we were in we, we had to find a place to live, and so we were moving from Chicago, and I was looking for an affordable place. In New York, yes. See, now I know. I, I, there was actually no affordable place to live, so we had to look for a place that was less painful to live than the other places uh, that we had to live. And we were up on on the North Shore at the time, do, uh, working at a church up there. And uh, and so we picked a, a great little neighborhood uh, called Manorhaven in Port Washington. Some of you know Manor Haven. it's a great little neighborhood. Well. Someone who was not living in Manorhaven—they were living in a place more like you know, Plandome or something like that—they heard that we were looking for an apartment and they asked where we were going to live. And I said, "Oh, we're we're looking at some really nice apartments up in Manorhaven." And they said, um, "Ooh, you sure you want to do that?" And uh, I was like, "Well, well, now I'm not." <laughs> Like you like, like you you're the one with like local knowledge here. I'm moving in from out of state. Like uh, you got what's going on. Well, it's not really a safe neighborhood. And now you have a wife and you've got a brand new baby. Joel had just was just born. And they're like, you know, it's not really a safe neighborhood. And I was like, you know, I, I find that surprising. I, I sort of feel like the eighteen hundred dollar a month rent would keep the riffraff out. <laughs> Like, you know, I'm going to struggle paying this, and now you're, uh, you're, so of course, it was a fantastic neighborhood. It was wonderful, and there were no issues, and, but it was even further removed because now we have even less access to people with real and significant need. You see, this happens to us. We, we become insulated somehow. Recently, we had an opportunity. We were exploring a project that we were hopefully going to do with uh, the foster care office of Nassau County, and uh, we were very excited. We still might end up doing this project with them, but right now they're not ready for it, but we're ready for it, uh, and so we really want to help them. But uh, we ended up having to go to some neighborhoods uh, down on the South Shore that, uh, that were pretty tough. I mean, in this na- the neighborhood that we were looking at, uh, it, it, was ju- it had significant poverty and disrepair everywhere and just kind of a general sense of dinginess. The sort of a place that if you had to imagine that, you know, you were going to die and your kids had to go into foster care and they were going to go into these neighborhoods and homes, you would not be happy about it. You would not be happy about it. In fact, that's the mentality I gave. I started to think what Is this the sort of a thing that I find acceptable in the world? And, of course, we don't, which is why we want to do something about it, which is why we we actually want to try to help, because it isn't acceptable. And if it isn't acceptable for us, it shouldn't be acceptable for anyone. But, you know, those little experiences, they help to just jostle us a little bit to remind us how much of the world, even in our own neighborhood, lives in conditions and has experiences that we would find absolutely unacceptable. And that's our own neighbors. What about the plight of the world? Because it's far worse out there. Global poverty is still unacceptably high. The number of hungry people or sick people or poor people in the world really is staggering. By many recent estimates, 11% 11% of the world lives on less than $2 a day, which means they will not eat their three square meals a day. They won't have access to clean water. Their water The water they drink itself will most likely get them sick. They don't have clean sanitation or anything like that. Most won't even have real roofs over their heads. This is the condition of a huge proportion of the world's population in the most dire poverty. That doesn't even talk about the people that are a rung or two above it, which would still be very, very heart-wrenching. And our, the plight of our brothers and sisters around the world, Christians around the world, is also still pretty unbelievable. The persecution and the poverty that exists still surprises me. Because we live with such comfort and ease, safety and protection. You know, we have religious freedom. This is not the experience of many of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're told that Christians are persecuted in an active way in more than 60 countries around the world today. 60 countries. Our brothers and sisters are being persecuted Every month, according to Open Doors Ministries, it tracks this sort of stuff. They say 160 Christians are imprisoned without trial because of their faith. Locked up, maybe they'll get out, maybe they won't. There's no legal advocacy system there. They say 66 churches are attacked. Bricks thrown through windows, arson attempts, vandalization, 180 Christian women are assaulted every month because of their faith in Jesus. 104 are abducted. And incredibly, in this day and age, 255 Christians are killed every single month because of their faith. Followers of Christ, we're supposed to be aware and taking action To help those who are facing persecution and those with less material resources than we have. That's that's what we're called to do. And it's why the Matthew 25 challenge is so helpful and important for us to participate in. World Vision is hosting this and running this in many churches around uh, the country, uh, even throughout the year. And uh, they produced a little intro video for it.
0: The Matthew 25 challenge was a transformational moment for my family and I. There's one particular day when the challenge was to sleep on the floor and I walked by my daughter's room and she was already there on her sleeping bag reading her Bible.
1: The Matthew 25 challenge was an incredibly spiritual experience for me personally. God was teaching us different things every day and sharing it with each other was really exciting. Well, when it came to the Water Day challenge, three words come to mind, caffeine withdrawal headaches. Going without coffee all day was a lot harder than I thought. I'd get these headaches, but every time I did, it would remind me of the six kilometer walk that women and children have to do to get unclean water. My
0: first thought was, this'll be easy. I grew up missing meals and sleeping on the floor, but my daughters, not so much. They were challenged to come out of their Wi-Fi life and actually experience what kids around the world experience every single day.
1: Let's open up to that text, Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. This passage comes at uh, the end of a longer section of text where Jesus is offering all sorts of teachings about uh, the kingdom that was going to come, about his imminent return in the future, all sorts of things like this. And in our, in our part of the text is a bit of a culmination for all of the things that they were talking about uh, in the few chapters before. So some of the stuff I'm going to say, you'll have to go back and read the context to kind of get the full effect of uh, what uh, is going on here. So Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. He will sit on his glorious throne, and the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now this, the context before this, and of course the very first few words here when the Son of Man comes in his glory, tells us that Jesus will return. And I think sometimes we, we forget about this. You know, we think about the fact that he came 2,000 years ago, and he did. He showed up halfway around the world. He was a carpenter, learned a trade, had three years of ministry, ultimately died on the cross, and his followers said he rose again. When he ascended into heaven, he told them at that point that he would return. And a whole portion of the Old Testament, as well as the New, talk about this reality. That Jesus is going to return, but he isn't going to return as the humble servant carpenter who rides a foal. He's going to return in all of his glory with his heavenly army as king of the universe. So that's his glorious return, the day when he will make all wrongs right, wipe away every tear. And he's, going to be, and he's going to return, according to the context, at an unexpected time. It could be any moment. It could be today. It could be any time this week. It could be before the end of the service here today. And when he returns, he is going to be distinguishing between those on his right and those on his left. What does he mean? Between those who follow him as king and those who refuse to follow him as king. He'll distinguish between them. And he's going to gather all of these folks up and he's going to say, you have recognized and honored the king of the universe and you have not. He will distinguish between us. And when he returns, he is going to expect that we will be busy about our work. He expects us to be accomplishing his mission. So if you follow him as king, you will in fact accomplish his mission in the world. And that's what we see. Look at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So you get the picture. All of the righteous, they've already been separated out. They're all standing there, and Jesus is like, hey, man, thank you so much for doing all these awesome things for me. And of course, they're thinking, I mean, not that we wouldn't have done it, Jesus. Like, if, if we knew you were there, we would have done it for you, of course. But we didn't. <laughs> like, you know, he hadn't been arrested yet. When he, was, when he was hungry in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and, and no food, no water, what was going on? Nobody, he was alone. They didn't have any opportunity to do any of these things for Jesus. Not to mention, he's already in this story taken on the title of king. We didn't do it. We, I mean, we would love to have. It'd be great credit you're giving us. And Jesus is like, no, but, but you do get the credit. You do get it. Because you were busy doing the work that I called you to do. I think this is one of the surest evidences that a person is a genuine Christian. There are all sorts of people who like to say they're Christians. So many people, even in our country, even at this time, would say that they're Christians. Oh yeah, I follow Jesus. I certainly hope to get to heaven at the end. I mean, why wouldn't I? And yet they aren't actually doing what Jesus has called them to do. And he's saying, listen, guys, I I fully expect that you will actually be doing the work that I left for you. The very work I came to do, the very work I expect you to be accomplishing. This is why we always talk about our mission as a church. This isn't just a random collection of things that we kind of put together in a neat little graphic. Last week we looked at how you can live out our mission. Love God, love people, grow in Christ, serve the world in your work, in your vocation. We used it as sort of a grid to see how you could do it. But it's actually way more than simply a grid that you would use to think through your work life. It's a grid you would use to think through the whole of your life. Because it captures, in a very summary form, all of these kinds of teachings. For instance... We're told to, we, we encourage, one of the things that we want to do is help us to love God. Well, what does that mean? Well, in our context, it means that you've recognized who your king is. It means you give him the, the awe and the respect and the honor that is due to the king of the universe. Anytime a really important person walks into like a, a room, you can see the deference that they're afforded. Even in a society like ours, that isn't like particularly based on, you know, on position and privilege and things like that. You'll still see it. You'll get a celebrity. They'll get their special attention. If you are living in a monarchy, when the king enters the room, all eyes are focused on the king. Rightly so. Now we're talking not about some earthly king, flawed and damaged. We're talking about the heavenly king who himself has saved humanity. When we're saying love God. We're talking about making that king the central focus of your life. We talk about love people. And the primary focus of Christian love is actually on your Christian, is toward your Christian family. I know some of you that might not resonate with you. You might think, well, we're all kind of God's people. You know, everybody is, you know, is a child of God, but that's only true in sort of like the loosest, most you know, tiny sliver of a way. Yes, we're all created by God in, in, in a sense, and so we're related as some sort of human family. But earlier in the book of Matthew, Jesus was asked this. He, he, remember he was told at one point somebody said, hey, your mom is out there and your brothers are out there. And he's like, who, who is my mother and my brothers? But it's not, it's not them. They're my, they're my physical family. But my brothers and my sister, it's, it's you. He looked out to the crowd and he goes, these are my brothers and these are my sisters and this these are my mothers. This is my family. The, the people who will do what I've called them to do, they're my brothers and my sisters. The primary focus, and even and you'll see this, you'll read through the scriptures and time and again it will say this. Remember all of the love one another's, all those one another commandments? That's about how we are to live as followers of Christ together. How we're to treat each other in our spiritual family. Sometimes it will even, the Bible will even specifically say, go out and do good to all the world, especially those who are of the household of faith. There is a special commitment of love and sacrifice that we are supposed to make to each other. Then we talk about growing in Christ. And for this, we really like to focus in on, on what obedience looks like. You know, so this whole text that we're looking at, it's about doing what Jesus called us to do. That's a life of obedience. That's what it means to grow in Christ. As you grow in Christ, you will obey him more fully and completely. I think, to me, something odd happened. There's this whole brand of Christianity that downplays the life of obedience and I don't know exactly what happened to us, but you know, we've all fallen into it in different at different stages in our in our development as Christians. But you know, it, that we take these great principles of the Reformation that we're saved by grace through faith, and that not from yourself. And we go, yes, that's true. We're saved by grace through faith. And that, that is true. And we're saved not by works, meaning nothing you can do can save you. That's true too. And we're saved. Not because we deserve it, not because we're really good people, but because of Christ's love for us and because it's, a, it's his gift. He died in our place. That's all true. And then we take all of these principles and we come over here and we say, I guess I don't need to do anything. How did we make that jump? Now we say, well, I guess, you know, since it doesn't matter what I do, my works aren't what matters. It's not. I can't earn my salvation, so you know what? I'm in. I'm good. I don't have to worry about anything. Really? Because that's not what we see in the rest of the scriptures. Those are still true. But that doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want and live however we want. Quite the contrary. In fact, if these doctrines are true about you, then the scriptures say that he who began a good work in you, meaning he who started the work of conversion in your soul, will bring it to its completion. Its completion means the heart is being continually transformed such that we will willingly and joyfully obey the king. There's no other way around it. There's no other version of Christianity where you can claim to follow him, claim your salvation and decide to live however you want. The scriptures don't have a box for that. It doesn't exist. This is how we grow in Christ. Then of course he tells us to serve the world. There are two great ways that we get to serve the world. We get to serve the world by simply telling them about our king. We get to tell, call it whatever you want. Call it, you know, sharing your faith or witnessing or evangelizing or proselytizing. It depends on like what generation you grew up in in Sunday school, I guess. But, uh, you know, you call it whatever you want. But the point is, you have been saved by the king of the universe. He has transformed your heart and your life. He has given you the gift of eternal life and he has promised you a place, an inheritance in his kingdom. And you're not going to tell people about that? What kind of a cretin would do that? you have the cure for the soul. Of course you're gonna tell other people about it. The expectation is you would because if you have the cure, how how could you not tell the world that you have the cure? Of course you would. So one of the great ways to serve the world is by sharing your experience, your commitment, your faith in the saving work of Christ because of the cross. We also get to serve the world by loving them like Jesus loved them. And even if this passage and many other passages point to the need to, to devote ourselves to the, to, to the brotherhood and the sisterhood of Christ, the family of Christ, many other passages give us the example of what it means to love the world, to serve the world in very real and concrete ways. For instance, you get the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan is a story about a guy these two guys, one guy gets whacked up and, and, you know, mugged and robbed, and he's dying on the side of the road, and his enemy sees him. Now, he could just kick him and move on, because he had been so mistreated by his people over the years. But instead, at great personal risk, financial cost, cost and energy and time, he brings this guy and makes certain that he, he rescues him and makes sure that he is nursed back to health. And Jesus takes that whole exchange between enemies and says, well, now tell me who's your neighbor. That's how you act in the world. That's how you love your neighbor. That's how you serve the world. The prophets did the same thing over and over. They told us, listen, the widow and the orphan and the poor and the stranger and the refugee and the people who, who, who dwell in your land, who are foreigners to you, love those people and care for those people and look out for those people. In fact, one of the reasons they give For why Israel was kicked out of their land was because they refused to do those things, to show compassion and mercy on the people who needed it most. Now, you could just put a period in here. It would be a great way to end the story because now he's told us, this is the way we ought to live. Go and do these great things in the world. But Jesus takes this in kind of a slightly darker uh, turn here for us for just a moment. So take a look at verse 41. He says, And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. See, there are terrible consequences that await those who refuse to do what Jesus called them to do. Terrible consequences that await those who decide to live as if Jesus is not their king. In fact, he tells us here that if you want to live life without Jesus as king, then you will get exactly what you wanted. You will get life forever without Jesus. Life outside of God's rule and outside of God's mercy, just like you picked when you had the chance. You'll get it for eternity. say, listen, this is not what Christ's plan is for us. He's laid this out for us. He's given us the warnings. He's saying, listen, this is who I've called you to be. And I got to tell you, you will never, Christian, you will never look more like Jesus than when you are humbly serving the people who most need it. You will never look more like Jesus than when you are caring for the orphan or working to restore the broken, when you're battling sex trafficking, when you're helping the poor, when you're restoring prisoners, when you're giving shelter to a stranger. You will never look more like Jesus than when You are sharing his love and his forgiveness with people when you're telling them about the gospel, about his grace and his love and his forgiveness. You will never look more like Jesus than when you are committing yourself to the great work of the mission of his kingdom being made known on this planet. And that's why we love the Matthew 25 challenge because it is designed to help us get jostled out of our lethargy. The ushers are going to hand out to you a little card, and it is a one-week challenge. It goes from this Sunday to next Sunday. And from now until then, there will be a challenge presented to us for every single day, Monday through Saturday, that is designed to help us think about and reflect on the needs of people all around us. Now, the way they're going to do that is through the challenges that are laid out here that as a congregation that we will uh, participate in and it will also do it through kind of a daily texting thing uh, which I'll talk to you in a minute but you're going to want to get your phone out to kind of get it set up I think we missed up in the front um, over here as well in the corner so how does this work well we all sign up you sign up today we start the challenges tomorrow on Monday the challenge is to skip lunch, and then break your fast tonight with rice. That night with rice and beans. Now, somebody from the earlier service said, "That's fine. I do rice and beans all the time. I add a little bit of like, you know, like, you know meat on the side, a tortilla, some guacamole, and yeah, that's a burrito. That's not what we're talking about here. You can't bake this thing in bacon fat and think that we're making the we're doing the challenge." So skip lunch and break the fast that night with rice and beans. On Tuesday, we give up all drinks except water. And once again, we need a little clarifier because water that has been steeped in ground-up beans is not water. Now it's something else. High water content, but we do call that coffee. If you want to take this challenge, it's all drinks except water. Wednesday, we sleep on the floor that night as a way to remember that there are people all around the planet who have to pick up what they have under threat of death. They, they, they leave their home and their land as refugees, and they end up living and sleeping in incredibly dire conditions, sometimes with no plan for the future and no hope of ever returning back to their home, sleeping on floors uh, that are not their own. Thursday, wear the same clothes you wore yesterday. Some of you are like, no way, now I draw the line. Isn't it funny where our lines are drawn? And this is one. some of you are like, absolutely not. This is going to be a great challenge. I know for Trevor, this is easy, he does it all week long. (laughs) Um, But for some of you, this is going to be a big thing. You're going to be like, can I wear different accessories at least so people don't notice? Uh, Friday, reach out to someone going through a difficult time, a text, an email, a phone call as you're showing someone some compassion. And then on Saturday, you're going to take some time in a 30-minute prayer walk to reflect on uh, on these challenges and to see what God is doing in your heart. Now, the way you participate in it is you text 44888. Take that text to that number and text M25, M25 to 44888. You can take your phone out right now, and you can do it. And then you'll get a little text back, and it will say to you, uh, if you want to start tomorrow, hit A or text back A. You do that, and then they'll register you. You just kind of go through the prompts. There's a few additional steps that you got to do. And then every single day, they'll ask for your zip code because they want to make sure that they're going to send you text throughout the day, and they want to send it to you at the right time during the day because you're already going to be sleeping on the floor. You don't need text in the middle of the night. Uh, so uh, they're going to do that for you as well to kind of help keep your awareness on the challenges. Why? Listen, we're not we're not naive. We don't think that this makes us suddenly aware of how people suffer in the world. That's not what we're trying to accomplish here. We're not going to say, oh, look, now I really know what it's like to suffer. This is not suffering. This is a small spiritual discipline through which we are asking God to jostle us awake so that we might better understand, experience, think about, and pray for people around the world who are genuinely hurting, genuinely suffering. And God will teach us things through it. He takes even the smallest sacrifice, even the smallest offering. And this consider this an extended meditation that can last the whole of the week. And if you participate in it, and you're going to share, you'll see a whole lot of stuff on Facebook and people sharing stuff, ideas and thoughts on Instagram and what they're experiencing, encouraging you to post about it as well so that we can do this together as a community. And through it, to be continuing to ask God to transform our hearts and change the way we think and to make our hearts more like his. You'll also see if you follow through all the prompts, there's a great, there's a great uh, family guide with a whole lot of other ideas. So this is something perfect to do. If you've got uh, kids at home, this is something that you can all do together and uh, really make it a significant spiritual experience for you as um, family and as friends to do together. I really do hope that each and every one of you, I'm going to certainly do it. I know my wife is going to do the challenge, and I really do hope that each and every one of you uh, considers uh, taking uh, this challenge seriously and seeing if God will do some really neat work in our hearts as a result of the Matthew 25 challenge. I'm going to ask that the band come up. They're going to lead us in a song as we prepare our hearts to go to uh, the Lord's table. And as they do that, I just want to uh, I just want to ask... Uh, I just want to pray and ask God uh, to do something really special in our community here as a result of the challenge. Would you stand as we pray? Father, we are taking just a few moments here to reflect and to think and to ask that you would do something here in our midst, that you would take this small offering, this small sacrifice. And that you would do a transformative work in our hearts. We want to we ex- take more of your compassion and live it and experience it. We want to know how you feel uh, about those who are hurting and suffering in the world. We want to experience your love in a profound and a powerful way. We want to develop empathy and compassion. We want you, Lord, to challenge us over the course of this week so that next Sunday our hearts are in a great place as we receive an additional challenge and hear about some great other stuff that's going on in the world that we're participating in. Lord, I'm asking that you would use this week to prepare our hearts for next week as well as to just open us up, shape us, Lord, so that we might become the men and the women that you've called us to be, living your mission here every day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.